Section 18 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder, translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 18, Book 18, Chapter 1. Taste of the Ancients for Agriculture. We now pass on to the natural history of the various grains, of the garden plants and flowers, and indeed of all the other productions, with the exception of the trees and shrubs, which the earth, in her bounteousness, affords us. A boundless field for contemplation, if even we regard the herbs alone, when we take into consideration the varieties of them, their numbers, the flowers they produce, their odors, their colors, their juices, and the numerous properties they possess, all of which have been engendered by her with a view to either the preservation or the gratification of the human race. On entering, however, upon this branch of my subject, it is my wish, in the first place, to plead the cause of the earth, and to act as the advocate of her, who is the common parent of all, although in the earlier part of this work I have already had occasion to speak in her defence. For my subject matter, as I proceed in the fulfilment of my task, will now lead me to consider her in the light of being the producer of various noxious substances as well, in consequence of which it is that we are in the habit of charging her with our crimes, and imputing to her a guilt that is our own. She has produced poisons, it is true. But who is it but the man that has found them out? For the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, it is sufficient to be on their guard against them, and to keep at a distance from them. The elephant, we find, and the urus, know how to sharpen and renovate their teeth against the trunks of trees, and the rhinoceros against rocks. Wild boars, again, point their tusks, like so many poniards, by the aid of both rocks and trees. And all animals, in fact, are aware how to prepare themselves for the infliction of injury upon others. But still, which is there among them all, with the exception of men, that dips his weapons in poison? As for ourselves, we envenom the point of the arrow, and we contrive to add to the destructive powers of iron itself. By the aid of poisons, we taint the waters of the stream, and we infect the various elements of nature. Indeed, the very air even, which is the main support of life, we turn into a medium for the destruction of life. And it is not that we are to suppose that animals are ignorant of these means of defense, for we have already had occasion to point out the preparations which they make against the attacks of the serpent, and the methods they devise for effecting a cure when wounded by it. And yet, among them all, there is not one that fights by the aid of the poison that belongs to another, with the sole exception of men. Let us then candidly confess our guilt, we, who are not contented even with the poisons as nature has produced them, for by far the greater portion of them, in fact, are artificially prepared by the human hand. And then, besides, is it not the fact that there are many men the very existence of whom is a baneful poison, as it were? Like that of the serpent, they dart their livid tongue, and the venom of their disposition 
corrodes every object upon which it concentrates itself ever vilifying and maligning like the ill-omened birds of the night they disturb the repose of that darkness which is so peculiarly their own and break in upon the quiet of the night even by their moans and wailings the only sounds they are ever heard to emit like animals of inauspicious presage they only cross her path to prevent us from employing our energies or becoming useful to our fellow-men and the only enjoyment that is sought by their abominable aspirations is centred in their universal hatred of mankind still however even in this respect nature has asserted her majestic sway for how much more numerous are the good and estimable characters which she has produced just in the same proportion that we find her giving birth to productions which are at once both salutary and nutritious to man it is in our high esteem for men such as these and the commendations they bestow that we shall be content to leave the others like so many brakes and brambles to the devouring flames of their own bad passions and to persist in promoting the welfare of the human race and this with all the more energy and perseverance from the circumstance that it has been our object throughout rather to produce a work of lasting utility than to ensure ourselves a widely spread renown we have only to speak it is true of the fields and of rustic operations but still it is upon these that the enjoyment of life so materially depends and that the ancients conferred the very highest rank in their honours and commendations chapter two when the first wreaths of corn were used at rome romulus was the first to establish the arval priesthood at rome this order consisted of the eleven sons of acca laurentia his nurse together with romulus himself who assumed the appellation of the twelfth of the brotherhood upon this priesthood he bestowed as being the most august distinction that he could confer upon it a wreath of ears of corn tied together with a white fillet and this in fact was the first chaplet that was ever used at rome this dignity is only ended with life itself and whether in exile or in captivity it always attends its owner in those early days two ugera of land were considered enough for a citizen of rome and to none was a larger portion than this allotted and yet at the present day men who but lately were the slaves of the emperor nero have been hardly content with pleasure gardens that occupy the same space as this while they must have fish-ponds forsooth of still greater extent and in some instances i might add perhaps kitchens even as well numa first established the custom of offering corn to the gods and of propitiating them with the salted cake he was the first too as we learn from hemina to parch spelt from the fact that when in this state it is more wholesome as an element this method however he could only establish one way by making an enactment to the effect that spelt is not in a pure state for offering except when parched he it was too who instituted the fornicalia festivals appropriated for the parching of corn and others observed with equal solemnity 
for the erection and preservation of the termini, or boundaries of the field. For these termini, in those days, they particularly regarded as gods, while to other divinities they gave the names of Seia, from Sero, to sow, and of Segesta, from the Segedes, or crops of standing corn, the statues of which goddesses we still see erected in the circus. A third divinity, it is forbidden by the rules of our religion, to name even beneath a roof. In former days, too, they would not so much as taste the corn when newly cut, nor yet wine when just made, before the priests had made a libation of the first fruits. Chapter 3. The Ugarum of Land. That portion of land used to be known as a Ugarum, which was capable of being ploughed by a single Ugum, or yoke of oxen, in one day. And Actus, being as much as the oxen could plough at a single spell, fairly estimated, without stopping. This last was one hundred and twenty feet in length, and two in length made a Ugarum. The most considerable recompense that could be bestowed upon generals and valiant citizens was the utmost extent of land around which a person could trace a furrow with the plough in a single day. The whole population, too, used to contribute a quarter of a sextarius of spelt, or else half a one per head. From agriculture, the earliest surnames were derived. Thus, for instance, the name of Pilumnus was given to him who invented the pilum, or pestle of the bakehouse, for pounding corn. That of Piso was derived from Piso, to grind corn, and those of Fabius, Lentulus, and Cicero, from the several varieties of leguminous plants, in the cultivation of which, respectively, these individuals excelled. One individual of the family of the Junii received the name of Bubulcus, from the skill he displayed in breeding oxen. Among the sacred ceremonials, too, there was nothing that was held more holy than the marriage by confariation, and the woman just married used to present a cake made of spelt. Careless cultivation of the land was, in those times, an offence that came under the cognizance of the censors, and, as we learn from Cato, when it was said that such and such a man was a good agriculturist or a good husbandman, it was looked upon as the very highest compliment that could be paid him. A man came to be called Locopless, or rich, from being Loki Plenus, or full of earth. Money, too, received its name of Pecunia from Pecus, cattle. At the present day, even, in the registers of the censors, we find set down under the head of Pasqua, or pasture lands, everything from which the public revenues are derived, from the fact that, for a long period of time, pasture lands were the only sources of the public revenue. Fines, too, were only imposed in the shape of paying so many sheep or so many oxen, and the benevolent spirit of the ancient laws deserves remark, which most considerately enjoin that the magistrate, when he inflicted a penalty, should never impose a fine of an ox before having first condemned the same party to the payment of a sheep. Those who celebrated the public games in honor of the ox received the name of Bubetii. King Servius was the first who impressed upon our copper coin the figures of sheep and oxen. To the pasture cattle secretly by night, upon the unripe crops on plough lands, or to cut them in that state, was made, by the twelve tables, 
a capital offence in the case of an adult, and it was enacted that the person guilty of it should be hanged in order to make due reparation to the goddess Ceres, a punishment more severe even than that inflicted for murder. If, on the other hand, the offender was not an adult, he was beaten at the discretion of the praetor. A penalty, double the amount of the damage, was also exacted. The various ranks, too, and distinctions in the state had no other origin than the pursuits of agriculture. The rural tribes held the foremost rank, and were composed of those who possessed lands, while those of the city, a place to which it was looked upon as ignominious to be transferred, had the discredit thrown upon them of being an indolent race. Hence it was that these last were only four in number, and received their names from the several parts of the city which they respectively inhabited, being the Suburban, the Palatine, Coline, and Exquiline tribes. Every ninth day, the rural tribes used to visit the city for the purpose of marketing, and it was for this reason that it was made illegal to hold the comitia upon the Nandine, the object being that the country people might not be called away thereby from the transaction of their business. In those days, repose and sleep were enjoyed upon straw. Even to glory itself, in complement to corn, the name was given of Adoria. For my own part, I greatly admire the modes of expression employed in our ancient language. Thus, for instance, we read in the commentaries of the priesthood to the following effect. For deriving an augury from the sacrifice of a bitch, a day should be set apart before the year of corn appears from out of the sheath, and then again before it enters the sheath. Chapter 4. How often, and on what occasions, corn has sold at a remarkably low price. The consequence was that, when the Roman manners were such as these, the corn that Italy produced was sufficient for its wants, and it had to be indebted to no province for its food. And not only this, but the price of provisions was incredibly cheap. Manius Marcius, the edile of the people, was the first who gave corn to the people at the price of one as for the modius. Lucius Minutius Augurinus, the same who detected, when eleventh tribune of the people, the projects of Spurius Melius, reduced the price of corn on three market days to one as per modius, for which reason a statue was erected in honor of him by public subscription, without the Trigeminian gate. Titus Sayus distributed corn to the people, in his aedileship, at one as per modius, in remembrance of which statues were erected in honor of him, also in the capital and the palatium. On the day of his funeral, he was borne to the pile on the shoulders of the Roman people. In the year, too, in which the mother of the gods was brought to Rome, the harvest of that summer, it is said, was more abundant than it had been for ten years before. Marcus Varro informs us that in the year in which Lucius Metellus exhibited so many elephants in his triumphal procession, a modius of spelt was sold for one ass, which was the standard price also of a congius of wine, thirty pounds weight of dried figs, ten pounds of olive oil, and twelve pounds of flesh meat. Nor did this cheapness originate in the widespread domains of individuals encroaching continually upon their neighbors, for by a law proposed by Licinius Stolo, 
the landed property of each individual was limited to five hundred ugra, and he himself was convicted under his own law of being the owner of more than that amount, having as a disguise prevailed upon his son to lend him his name. Such were the prices of commodities at a time when the fortunes of the Republic were rapidly on the increase. The words, too, that were uttered by Manius Curius, after his triumphs, and the addition of an immense extent of territory to the Roman sway, are well known. The man must be looked upon, said he, as a dangerous citizen, for whom seven Uger of land are not enough. Such being the amount of land that had been allotted to the people, after the expulsion of the kings. What then was the cause of a fertility so remarkable as this? The fact, we have every reason to believe, that in those days the lands were tilled by the hands of generals even, the soil exulting beneath a ploughshare crowned with wreaths of laurel, and guided by a husbandman graced with triumphs. Whether it is that they tended the seed with the same care that they had displayed in the conduct of wars, and manifested the same diligent attention in the management of their fields that they had done in the arrangement of the camp, or whether it is that under the hands of honest men everything prospers all the better from being attended to with a scrupulous exactness. The honors awarded to Serranus found him engaged in sowing his fields, a circumstance to which he owes his surname. Cincinnatus was ploughing his four Ugaro of land upon the Vaticanian hill, the same that are still known as the Quintian Meadows, when the messenger brought him the dictatorship, finding him, the tradition says, stripped to the work, and his very face begrimed with dust. Put on your clothes, said he, that I may deliver to you the mandates of the Senate and people of Rome. In those days, these messengers bore the name of Viator, or Wayfarer, from the circumstance that their usual employment was to fetch the senators and generals from their fields. But at the present day these same lands are tilled by slaves, whose legs are in chains, by the hands of malefactors, and men with a branded face. And yet the earth is not deaf to our adjurations, when we address her by the name of parent, and say that she receives our homage, in being tilled by hands such as these. As though, forsooth, we ought not to believe that she is reluctant and indignant at being tended in such a manner as this. Indeed, ought we to feel any surprise were the recompense she gives us when worked by chastised slaves, not the same that she used to bestow upon the labors of warriors? Chapter 5. Illustrious Men Who Have Written Upon Agriculture Hence it was that to give precepts upon agriculture became one of the principal occupations among men of the highest rank, and that in foreign nations even. For among those who have written on this subject, we find the names of kings even, Hero, for instance, Adelus Philometor, and Archelaus, as well as of generals, Xenophon, for example, and Mago the Carthaginian. Indeed, to this last writer did the Roman Senate award such high honors, that, after the capture of Carthage, when it bestowed the libraries of that city upon the petty kings of Africa, it gave orders, in his case only, that his thirty-two books should be translated into the Latin language, and this, although Marcus Caro had already compiled his book of precepts. 
it took every care also to entrust the execution of this task to men who were well versed in the Carthaginian tongue, among whom was preeminent Decimus Silanus, a member of one of the most illustrious families of Rome. I have already indicated, at the commencement of this work, the numerous learned authors and writers in verse, together with other illustrious men whose authority it is my intention to follow. But among the number I may here more particularly distinguish Marcus Varro, who, at the advanced age of eighty-eight years, thought it his duty to publish a treatise upon this subject. Among the Romans the cultivation of the vine was introduced at a comparatively recent period, and at first, as indeed they were obliged to do, they paid their sole attention to the culture of the fields. The various methods of cultivating the land will now be our subject, and they shall be treated of by us in no ordinary or superficial manner, but in the same spirit in which we have hitherto written. Enquiry shall be made with every care, first into the usages of ancient days, and then into the discoveries of more recent times, our attention being devoted alike to the primary causes of these operations and the reasons upon which they are respectively based. We shall make mention, too, of the various constellations, and of the several indications which, beyond all doubt, they afford to the earth, and the more so from the fact that those writers who have hitherto treated of them with any degree of exactness seem to have written their works for the use of any class of men but the agriculturist. CHAPTER six, POINTS TO BE OBSERVED IN BUYING LAND First of all, then, I shall proceed in a great measure according to the dicta of the oracles of agriculture, for there is no branch of practical life in which we find them more numerous or more unerring. And why should we not view in the light of oracles those precepts which have been tested by the infallibility of time and the truthfulness of experience? To make a beginning then with Cato. The agricultural population, says he, produces the bravest men, the most valiant soldiers, and a class of citizens the least given of all to evil designs. Do not be too eager in buying a farm. In rural operations never be sparing of your trouble, and above all when you are purchasing land. A bad bargain is always a ground for repentance. Those who are about to purchase land should always have an eye more particularly to the water there the roads, and the neighborhood. Each of these points is susceptible of a very extended explanation, and replete with undoubted truths. Cato recommends, too, that an eye should be given to the people in the neighborhood, to see how they look, for where the land is good, says he, the people will look well-conditioned and healthy. Attilius Regulus, the same who was twice consul in the Punic War, used to say that a person should neither buy an unhealthy piece of land in the most fertile locality, nor yet the very healthiest spot in a barren country. The salubrity of land, however, is not always to be judged of from the looks of the inhabitants, for those who are well seasoned are able to withstand the effects of living in pestilent localities even. And then, besides, there are some localities that are healthy during certain periods of the year only, though in reality there is no soil that can be looked upon as really valuable that is not healthy all the year through. That is sure to be bad land against which its owner has a continual struggle. 
Cato recommends us before everything to see that the land which we are about to purchase not only excels in the advantages of locality, as already stated, but is really good of itself. We should see, too, he says, that there is an abundance of manual labor in the neighborhood, as well as a thriving town, that there are either rivers or roads to facilitate the carriage of the produce, that the buildings upon the land are substantially erected, and that the land itself bears every mark of having been carefully tilled, a point upon which I find that many persons are greatly mistaken, as they are apt to imagine that the negligence of the previous owner is greatly to the purchaser's advantage, while the fact is that there is nothing more expensive than the cultivation of a neglected soil. For this reason it is that Cato says that it is best to buy land of a careful proprietor, and that the methods adopted by others ought not to be hastily rejected, that it is the same with land as with mankind, however great the proceeds, if at the same time it is lavish and extravagant, there will be no great profits left. Cato looks upon a vineyard as the most profitable investment, and he is far from wrong in that opinion, seeing that he takes such particular care to retrench all superfluous expenses. In the second rank he places gardens that have a good supply of water, and with good reason too, supposing always that they are near a town. The ancients gave to meadowlands the name of parata, or lands always ready. Cato being asked, on one occasion, what was the most certain source of profit? Good pasture land, was his answer, upon which inquiry was made what was the next best. Pretty good pasture lands, said he, the amount of all which is that he looked upon that as the most certain source of income which stands in need of the smallest outlay. This, however, will naturally vary in degree, according to the nature of the respective localities, and the same is the case with the maxim to which he gives utterance, that a good agriculturist must be fond of selling. The same, too, with his remark, that in his youth a landowner should begin to plant without delay, but that he ought not to build until the land is fully brought into cultivation, and then only a little at a time, and that the best plan is, as the common proverb has it, to profit by the folly of others, taking due care, however, that the keeping up of a farmhouse does not entail too much expense. Still, however, those persons are guilty of no falsehood who are in the habit of saying that a proprietor who is well housed comes all the oftener to his fields, and that the master's forehead is of more use than his back. Chapter 7 the proper arrangements for a farmhouse. The proper plan to be pursued is this. The farmhouse must not be unsuitable for the farm, nor the farm for the house. And we must be on our guard, against following the examples of Lucius Lucullus and Quintus Sevilla, who, though living in the same age, fell into the two opposite extremes. For whereas the farmhouse of Sevilla was not large enough for the produce of his farm, the farm of Lucullus was not sufficiently large for the house he built upon it, an error which gave occasion to the reproof of the censors, that on his farm there was less of ground for ploughing than a floor for sweeping. The proper arrangements for a farmhouse are not to be made without a certain degree of skill. Gaius Marius, who was seven times consul, was the last person who had one built at Mycenae, 
but he erected it with such a degree of that artistic skill which he had displayed in Castramitadian, that Scylla Felix even made the remark that in comparison with Marius all the others had been no better than blind. It is generally agreed that a farmhouse ought neither to be built near a marsh, nor with a river in front of it, for, as Homer has remarked, with the greatest correctness, unwholesome vapours are always exhaled from rivers before the rising of the sun. In hot localities, a farmhouse should have a northern aspect, but where it is cold, it should look towards the south. Where, on the other hand, the site is temperate, the house should look due east. Although, when speaking of the best kinds of soil, I may seem to have sufficiently discussed the characteristics by which it may be known, I shall take the present opportunity of adding a few more indications, employing the words of Cato more particularly for the purpose. The dwarf elder, says he, the wild plum, the bramble, the small bulb, trefoil, meadowgrass, the quercus, and the wild pear and wild apple are all of them indicative of a corn land. The same is the case, too, where the land is black or of an ashy color. All chalky soils are scorching, unless they are very thin. The same, too, with sand, unless it is remarkably fine. These remarks, however, are more applicable to champagne localities than declivities. The ancients were of opinion that before everything, moderation should be observed in the extent of a farm, for it was a favorite maxim of theirs, that we ought to sow the less and plough the more. Such, too, I find, was the opinion entertained by Virgil, and indeed, if we must confess the truth, it is the widespread domains that have been the ruin of Italy and soon will be that of the provinces as well. Six proprietors were in possession of one half of Africa, at the period when the Emperor Nero had them put to death. With that greatness of mind which was so peculiarly his own, and of which he ought not to lose the credit, Gnaeus Pompeius would never purchase the lands that belonged to a neighbor. Mago has stated it as his opinion that a person, on buying a farm, ought at once to sell his townhouse, an opinion, however, which savors of too great rigidity, and is by no means conformable to the public good. It is with these words, indeed, that he begins his precepts, a good proof, at all events, that he looks upon the personal inspection of the owner as of primary importance. The next point which requires our care is to employ a farm steward of experience, and upon this, too, Cato has given many useful precepts. Still, however, it must suffice for me to say that the steward ought to be a man nearly as clever as his master, though without appearing to know it. It is the very worst plan of all to have land tilled by slaves let loose from the houses of correction, as indeed is the case with all work entrusted to men who live without hope. I may possibly appear guilty of some degree of rashness in making mention of a maxim of the ancients which will very probably be looked upon as quite incredible, that nothing is so disadvantageous as to cultivate land in the highest style of perfection. Lucius Tarius Rufus, a man who, born in the very lowest ranks of life, by his military talents finally attained the consulship, and who, in other respects, adhered to the old-fashioned notions of thriftness, made away with about one hundred millions of sisters, which, by the liberality of the late Emperor Augustus, he had contrived to amass, 
in buying up lands in Picenum, and cultivating them in the highest style, his object being to gain a name thereby, the consequence of which was that his heir renounced the inheritance. Are you of opinion, then, that ruin and starvation must be the necessary consequence of such a course as this? Yes, by Hercules, and the very best plan of all is to let moderation guide our judgment in all things. To cultivate land well is absolutely necessary, but to cultivate it in the very highest style is mere extravagance, unless, indeed, the work is done by the hands of a man's own family, his tenants, or those whom he is obliged to keep at any rate. But besides this, even when the owner tills the land itself, there are some crops which it is really not worth the while to gather, if we only take into account the manual labor expended upon them. The olive, too, should never be too highly cultivated, nor must certain soils, it is said, be too carefully tilled, those of Sicily, for instance. Hence it is that newcomers there so often find themselves deceived. End of section 18